Welcome to the International Civil Society Centre's Futures and Innovation podcast. I'm Vicky Tung, the Programme Manager for Futures and Innovation here at the Centre. Our annual innovation report brings into focus innovations that can benefit international civil society organisations and also shows in turn how these organisations are benefiting society in challenging or complex contemporary contexts. This podcast episode forms part of our 2020 edition on civil society innovation and urban inclusion, highlighting how a range of organisations are working in cities around the world to deliver inclusive solutions for whole communities or particularly marginalised or vulnerable groups of residents. In each of these podcast case stories, we really want to lift the lid on these innovations and hear directly from the people at the heart of designing and delivering them. So today I'm really excited to be talking to Sanji Singh, who is the Director of International Housing Programmes at Habitat for Humanity International. Thanks so much for joining me today, Sanji. Thank you so much, Vicky. Um, I'm really looking forward to this conversation and sharing some insights on Habitat's urban strategy and programming. So just to introduce Habitat for Humanity to our audiences, who are you and what do you do in terms of your urban footprint and organisational experience of working in urban areas, please? So Habitat for Humanity International is an international non-governmental organization. We're focused on affordable housing. Habitat really advocates that housing is an essential input to sustainable and transformative development. We're headquartered in the U.S. and we have presence in over 70 countries globally. In terms of our urban work, over 50% of Habitat's portfolio is based in urban areas and Habitat has adopted its global urban approach in 2016 as one of its four commitments uh, made to Habitat 3 in Quito. In terms of our urban programming, we are located under the Global Programs Design and Implementation Department, uh, and we really focus on trying to support the design and implementation of more comprehensive urban programs. Pre-COVID, uh, the global urban approach and our urban programming was really picking up momentum with several of our national organizations starting to develop national urban strategies and more comprehensive urban programs. And we were seeing this in particularly in, in Asia and in countries like India, Sri Lanka, Cambodia and Bangladesh. And for this report, we're looking at your global urban approach. What are the big ideas underpinning this, please? So Habitat's urban position is based on the fact that everybody needs a home. And we see housing as being central to building better cities due to the transformational impact of housing and the impact that it has on various sectors, including health, education, livelihood. Globally, our global urban approach includes designing evidence-based community level interventions to improve the living conditions of low-income and marginalized communities, but it also includes working with key public and private sector partners to really unlock barriers to affordable and adequate housing through co-designing and implementing systemic market and policy level interventions. And as Habitat, we feel that our competitive advantage is that we work across the entire housing ecosystem, meaning we work both at at a community level as well as market and policy level. In terms of our global urban approach, essentially we have three core objectives. The first is to design or to support the design and implementation of more comprehensive urban housing programs that include more evidence-based market policy 
and community level interventions. And like I said, operating across the entire housing ecosystem. Secondly, the core objective is to support the creation of unique multi-sector collaborations that really bring together people-public-private partnerships to support the design and implementation of more comprehensive housing programs. And thirdly, we're really trying to advocate and demonstrate the transformational impact of housing and its contribution to urban development. And we're seeing that there's growing evidence that housing not only serves as a physical structure, but really as a platform or a foundation to provide access to to households to greater development opportunities that contribute to their well-being and overall improvement in terms of quality of life. We also believe that we can achieve better outcomes and greater impact if if the affordable housing challenge is addressed with people at the center, especially the most vulnerable, And if it's implemented and supported through people-public-private partnerships with a deeper understanding of the entire housing ecosystem, and especially with a deeper understanding of communities' needs and priorities. And essentially, we feel that we cannot build better or more sustainable cities if we do not address the affordable housing challenge in a more holistic manner. And this has never been more evident, as we have seen during COVID where cities are really at the center of the global pandemic, given the greater concentrations and and densities of people. And what we're seeing is that within cities, people living in informal settlements and refugee camps are the most vulnerable to contracting COVID due to their poor living conditions, poor quality of housing, and limited access to water and sanitation. And we're seeing that given the high densities, and overcrowding, people are really unable to social distance and shelter in place sustainably for long periods of time, given given these challenges. Thanks, Angie. And we'll talk more about the impact of COVID-19 on your work later. In terms of helping to illustrate how these key elements of your global approach look like in practice and in different contexts around the world, I gave you the difficult challenge of picking out a couple of examples from your large global urban portfolio which could help highlight these different dimensions. And you picked out Liberia to look at some of the inclusion aspects and Paraguay to look at some of the innovation dimensions as well. So before we go into these examples, could you tell us more about the scale and dimensions of the housing challenge that you're solving? Perhaps starting at a global overview with some facts and figures and then then looking more perhaps at the Liberia context, please. So as we stand, 55% of the world is urban. According to the UN, 1.6 billion people worldwide live in substandard housing. And we know that one in eight people live in slum or informal settlements. And it's projected that by 2050, 40% of people will likely live in informal settlements or slum settlements. So what we're seeing is really that as cities grow, so does the need for housing. I think the rapid rates of urbanization mean that city governments are unable to meet existing housing backlogs or keep up with the demand for additional affordable housing. We're seeing that, you know, because of this rapid urbanization, land is scarce, cost of servicing land is high and building costs continue to increase. Consequently, we're seeing in cities, especially in the developing world, that there's really growing rates of informality and really the mushrooming and growth of informal settlements, which is really leading to greater inequality, increased 
insecure tenure and substandard housing in cities, especially in the developing world. As a result of rapid urbanization, we're seeing increasingly that low-income households are excluded from networked infrastructure as local governments struggle to meet the demand. And as a consequence, these low-income households are pushed to the peripheries of urban areas and in many cases are you know, residing in hazardous locations due to limited access to uh, affordable and decent housing. And what we're seeing is that this places low-income communities or households who are already uh, marginalized due to their poor living conditions. It places them on the periphery of cities and it really makes them more susceptible to the impacts of climate change and disasters. Thanks. And in terms of the case of Monrovia, Liberia, what are some of the key context factors that we need to be able to understand to situate your work in there, please? So in terms of Liberia, so 70% of the city of Monrovia is informal. So 70% of the population is living in informal or slum settlements. And I think that given the geography and the climatic conditions of, of Monrovia, Monrovia is categorized as the wettest capital in the world. And so for six months of the year, there is heavy rainfall. Also, it has a lot of low-lying delta areas. And what we're seeing is that the majority of these low-income informal settlements are really located on land that is subject to flooding or sea erosion and river flooding. And this really sort of undermines the safety and the sustainability of these settlements. The city of the government of Monrovia is very much focused on, on ensuring that they're able to address this informality and ensure the safety and security of their residents by implementing more strategic mechanisms to improve the living conditions of, of low-income households, but also to be able to you know, make strategic decisions about the relocation of vulnerable communities and to be able to do this in a participatory manner with low-income communities. And this is one of our key policy interventions that I'll speak about later. So one of the inclusion dimensions we're focusing on in the report is integrated systems-wide approaches. Your global urban approach takes this housing ecosystems perspective and acts at three different levels simultaneously. So community, market and policy, as you've already highlighted. Could you talk us through what this looks like and in, again in the Liberian context, please? So absolutely. So in terms of our approach to urban programming, what we advocate for is that innovative affordable housing solutions in any context require evidence-based community market and policy level interventions that really stem from a deeper understanding of the entire housing ecosystem, right? So this includes not just understanding the housing market conditions, the policy environment, but it also involves understanding communities' needs and priorities and understanding the hazards and the risks and the challenges that these communities face. I think our approach also really highlights the importance of relevant assessments that identify the constraints and optimize the opportunities that are really essential for supporting and implementing sustainable housing interventions. And what we're finding through this approach is that given the scale of the challenge, given its complexity, it's absolutely essential for us to be able to do this in partnership. So in partnership with what we call people-public-private partnerships, both for the assessments, but also for co-creating and implementing uh, these interventions at a community market and policy level. 
In terms of Monrovia, we designed various interventions at these three levels. At a community level, uh, we focused on working in one particular slum settlement, the slum settlement of Peace Island. This slum settlement was chosen because it was not in a hazardous location, so it had longer-term sustainability. The government owned the land and the title had been transferred to the residents. We wanted to ensure that we were able to sort of invest in a sustainable slum community. So the entry point into this community was a participatory approach to safe shelter awareness, or PASA. And basically, um, we utilized this approach on top of other work that had been done by other partners. So we worked very closely with Slum Dwellers International, who did settlement profiling and identified the needs and priorities of communities. So our uh, PASA assessment was really to supplement that and to help identify what the major risks and hazards were facing the community from a housing perspective. And what we did, so this process was led by community facilitators that had been trained in this approach and all the community interventions that emerged out of this process and, and the settlement profiling were based on the needs and priorities of the communities. And as a result, key interventions included increasing access to clean water by installing two new boreholes and water kiosks, increasing access to adequate sanitation. And we're in the process of building a 14-seater biogas eco-sanitation toilet facility, as well as a biofill toilet facility and renovating existing sanitation facilities. So the reason why we went for a biofill is that we really wanted to find a mechanism that was sustainable. It's very hard in these slum communities to be able to link up to the municipal infrastructure. So you very often you need solutions that are on-site and more sustainable. And we feel like this biofill will be able to convert the waste into gas and that gas will be able to be used by the community. Other community level interventions included improving solid waste collection by working uh, with the local municipality and building the capacity of the city sanitation services to link up and improve solid waste collection in this community. It also included a, a full community cleanup campaign where all community members participated in. And then other interventions included increasing hygiene awareness, which became pretty crucial. And we linked it up to a lot of COVID hygiene awareness. And we've also built a community hall. So, so those were the, the interventions we focused on at a community level. So really looking at improving the living conditions and quality of life of low-income communities at a market level. So we did our assessments and we worked both on the demand and supply side of housing. So our initial market assessment provided a better understanding of the market conditions and the existing constraints and opportunities, especially around access to affordable materials. And also this assessment providers included highlighting key challenges around the supply of affordable building products and financial services. So the next step in our process was to put out a proposal call to identify innovative firms to improve the supply and the quality of housing products. So this process led to us identifying three firms, and this included a clay brick firm, a cement firm, and a firm working with uh, recycling plastic to 
build plastic blocks and roofing tiles. And on the demand side, the research revealed that there was a demand for or for us to be able to support incremental housing improvements, because this is the way the majority of people, especially living in informal settlements, improve their housing condition. It's incremental improvements, and they are able to do this through savings that they've accumulated or accessing microfinance, and then Habitat, through a proposal call, selected to work with a microfinance institution that was focused on women and Habitat will work with the selected institution to better understand the financial services desired by the target population and also to try and address the barriers to accessing housing microfinance services with the objective of designing microfinance products that are suitable for low-income households. At a policy level, um, Habitat worked with the National Housing Authority, which is the key government institution or agency that's responsible for affordable housing. And we worked with the NHA and affected communities to develop what we call gender responsive voluntary relocation guidelines. As I indicated earlier, many slum settlements are in locations that are subject to flooding, sea erosion, river erosion, rising sea levels. And these guidelines really provided a framework of principles and practices to facilitate the voluntary relocation of slum communities in Liberia, and with a particular focus on communities that were really facing life-threatening situations uh, that are really compounded by the effects of climate change. These guidelines reflect the commitment of the government of Liberia, as well as all of the partners involved in the Liberia Country Programme to engage in voluntary relocation processes and to protect slum communities and support the broader goal of creating inclusive, safe, resilient and sustainable cities and human settlements. So I think just sort of indicate how, indicating or sharing with you how we worked across all these levels sort of highlights the comprehensive approach we took to our urban programming. And obviously, uh, we also supported a lot of institutional building across various sectors, including the private sector and the public sector. And this included formal training, workshops, and the transference of skills and knowledge to ensure that as we operated across these three levels, we were also ensuring that we were supporting capacity building of the relevant institutions to ensure uh, long-term sustainability. Thanks, Sanji. And I think that's a really powerful illustration of that comprehensive approach and the differences that you're able to make both in a specific neighbourhood, but also citywide and beyond. And also some very nice examples of how you have identified and promoted local innovation within the system as well. One of the other core aspects of your global urban approach are the, is this explicit people-public-private partnership focus. And another part of the systems dimension that we've been looking at with in terms of multi-stakeholder engagement and delivery. Could you talk us through the importance of this? And again, within the Monrovia context, please. You know, just starting with sort of the systems thinking, right? So many of the development problems we face are part of an intricate social, economic, political, and environmental web or, or system. And this really constitutes complex or a multi-dimensional reality. And what we find is that, you know, when you're working in this kind of a, a system and where everything is interlinked, solving these problems require the consideration of many factors. 
It also requires understanding the various actors that are working within the system. And, you know, these complex dynamic issues really require multi-sector collaborations that cut across various sectors. So we really feel that it's really essential to be able to develop, you know, a shared understanding with the actors of of what the problem is and to be able to co-create and work together to design solutions that really foster collective commitment to action. This is why we really advocate for what we call the four Ps or people-public-private partnerships. We really see these as necessary alliances to ensure that the development needs of the most vulnerable and poor are addressed and met in urban or complex urban contexts. But it's also, like I said, to really ensure that we have all the right partners at the table, that there is a common understanding of the problem, that they're fully engaged and committed to a common vision. You know, while public-private partnerships have been recognized as a critical to development intervention, so we always speak about public-private partnerships. So we think it's really important to emphasize and add the fourth P, so the people, and to really emphasize the uh, participation of communities and civil societies to ensure and guarantee the success of of our interventions. And overall, we see that people-public-private partnerships are good vehicles to leverage and maximize the strengths and the differences between different partners, especially where there are elements that can be complementary. And this includes partners bring to the table, you know, different levels of knowledge, information, resources, and other assets. And I think these partnerships really help to create an opportunity to equalize power and to bring different partners or parties to the table and to be able to give everybody an equal voice and to be able to leverage the capacity and resources of these different partners in in urban areas. Thanks. I think you've made a powerful case there. And so how did this constellation work within the Monrovia context? Okay, so in terms of of, uh, Monrovia, The Liberia Country Program, which was the overall urban program, was led by Cities Alliance in collaboration with the government of Liberia and other key partners. And these other partners included uh, Slum Dwellers International and their local counterpart YMCA. It included WIEGO, um, which is Women in Informal Employment, Globalizing and Organizing. It included UN Habitat, World Bank and various other partners were playing different roles within the Liberia Country Program. As Habitat, we engaged key public, private and community stakeholders to be able to validate the findings of our assessment and to co-create solutions. And in terms of partnership arrangements, we entered into various memorandums of understanding with key partners to support both our assessments, but also the implementation of these interventions. And our engagements with these partners included financial support, technical support, and capacity support. I think it is fair to say that in Liberia, we could not have achieved our desired outputs and outcomes without engaging with all these partners through uh, P4 partnerships. We would not have been able to work so closely with some communities without the facilitation provided by the YMCA. We wouldn't have had even entry point this easily into communities and the trust and the commitment that we had. 
we would not have been able to develop viable financial services or even viable housing products if we had not engaged the private sector and companies that were already doing this. And we would not have been able to develop the voluntary gender responsive guidelines without the support and the commitment of government and the affected communities. So overall, you know, we, we couldn't have done what we had done without uh, engaging and working with partners. And we feel that a P4 or multi-sector collaboration is a requirement for alleviating large uh, development challenges, especially in urban areas. Thanks, Andy. I think that really shows how it had to work as a system to be able to deliver all these outcomes. What are the main inclusive community opportunities and outcomes which you've been able to enable through the programme for these low-income communities? So I think the first thing was that there was a huge change in mindset. So prior to us engaging government and working with the National Housing Authority, the existing housing policy and mandate was not focused on supporting slum upgrading. And through our engagement through the Liberia Country Programme, the National Housing Authority set up what they called a slum upgrading unit and started to shift their policy thinking and their resources towards slum upgrading. So, I mean, that that was a huge shift in mindset, which really enabled us to work very closely with the government. And they actually set up an institutional structure within their organization to support slum upgrading called the Slum Upgrading Unit. And I think overall, this approach has really improved the connection between slum communities and the government of Liberia in terms, especially the National Housing Authority, in terms of these communities being able to elevate their voice and advocate for their needs and priorities to be met. This was further, I think, really enabled as well through the work that the Slum Dwellers International did in terms of conducting all these settlement profiling and being able to, you know, raise the needs and priorities of communities through that process, through the settlement forums, and then elevated further to the city forums. I think through, if we think of our interventions, through this process, the slum community of Peace Island has really now, we've started a comprehensive, almost a comprehensive slum upgrading uh, program where they are having you know, increased access to water, increased access to sanitation. And, and in particular, and now if we think about you know, linking up connections to the local municipality, the island now has solid waste being collected by a government authorized community-based enterprise. And previously, this slum community didn't have access or didn't have regular solid waste collection and the municipality didn't have the capacity to be able to support this community. And through our intervention, we've sort of bridged that linkage and and built that capacity. And now this community has ongoing solid waste collection. So much of this work already predated COVID-19, but it's obviously caused a massive adaptation and pivot both in your work in Liberia and your wider global urban programming portfolio. Could you talk through the main elements of of the impact this has had over your work for the past six months, please? What we've seen with this global pandemic is that it presents both a health and economic crisis, right? And what we're seeing is that the availability of adequate and affordable housing is really at the center of people being able to shelter in place for extended periods of time. And what we're seeing is that there's a need in all our programmatic approaches to think both about the immediate health response 
as well as the longer term economic recovery. And as an organization, we've adapted all of our programmatic guidelines to ensure that it's relevant to a COVID context. If we dive down and think about the impact of COVID at a country level, if we look at Liberia, COVID-19 has significantly reduced the pace of project implementation. I think the mandatory curfews and the closure of most of the government offices and limited working hours has significantly reduced the amount of time available for project implementation. And the restriction of people and their movement has also meant that project teams were not able to travel to and from project sites as, as they usually have done. So to ensure the continuation of project activities, Habitat has worked very closely with the National Housing Authority and the local government agencies to support a process where all the contractors that were involved in particular in Peace Island, because that was where most of the construction was taking place. So this included the drilling teams for the water project and the construction teams. What happened is that they were allocated a safe and adequate camping site within the community. You know, they were really eager to ensure that the, the work continued in the community and the community took it on, on themselves to provide meals for construction workers. And this having the construction workers actually stay in the community, be housed in the community, really helped to limit their movement and mitigate the risk of infection. But it also ensured that the contractors were available, you know, to work more efficiently with the available time and to continue with implementing the, uh, the project. I think other additional measures that we've seen within Liberia is the installation of hand washing stations, wearing of masks and protective gear as, as appropriate and during construction, and then obviously observing the, the required social distance at project sites and, and during personal interactions. And we have seen that we've required additional time, given, given the impact of COVID, to complete the implementation of this project. But at least we have been able to find mechanisms to continue the work in a safe manner. Thanks, Angie. I think that's really interesting in terms of how you've both had to adapt to your own work, but also how the trust and the partnerships that you've already previously built up through this work enabled you to do that quickly and effectively. You're listening to the International Civil Society Centre's Futures and Innovation Podcast. This episode is part of our 2020 Innovation Report on Civil Society Innovation and Urban Inclusion. So moving on now to the innovation dimensions which we're looking at in the report, which are disruption and scalability. I think you've already explained this really well for your Liberia example as well. But just to look at a completely different context so that we can see how this approach plays out elsewhere in the world and with different circumstances. We're also going to look at the example of some of your work in Asuncion, so the capital city of Paraguay. So looking at these aspects of disruption and changing the status quo and transforming things so that they are done in new ways, and again, looking at the wider kind of system and sector level disruption, how does this look for your global urban approach and in somewhere like Paraguay? In terms of Paraguay, I think, again, it's important to sort of highlight the systems thinking, right? So a system is considered a set of interlinked elements in an interaction with each other and the environment that are in a 
in, in, a, in a context that is con consistently changing over time and space. And like I said earlier, many of the development problems we face really are part of a more intricate social, economic, political and environmental web or a system. Um, and I think this was very evident in, in Paraguay. So when we think about solving these problems, uh, we have to take into consideration many factors. We have to look at the, the various factors that contribute to the challenge. And you have to look at the different actors and you have to look at various sectors. And, and I think what is key when you take a systems approach is that you need to be able to identify leverage points within that system where a small change can produce a major transformation. And, and I think that is key to be able to disrupt the status quo. The challenge is to be able to identify these leverage points through assessments and deeper contextual analysis across the housing ecosystem. I think the project in Asuncion, Paraguay, really is reflective of this. This project dealt with uh, the voluntary relocation of a thousand families living in flood-prone areas. This initiative was led by the government in collaboration with Habitat for Humanity Paraguay, who was responsible for executing the social components of the projects. And this included supporting families in the relocation and being able to support families in being able to adapt to their new environment. So essentially, a Habitat Paraguay acted as the mediator or the facilitator between the community and government and also supported the contractor who was responsible for the actual relocation and the building of the, of the new, new homes to ensure that the relocation policy that had been developed by the government was correctly implemented. So the municipality of Asuncion implemented the process in terms of the relocation, as well as dealt with the process for land regularization and tenure security. And I think the key, if we think about leverage points, right, the key leverage point in the case of Asuncion was that the information collected at a community level was really able to influence and shape the development of public policy and lead to systemic changes at that level in terms of you know, ensuring that there were systemic changes that were made not just to policy, but also to planning, budgeting, and service delivery for slum communities. So I think this again highlights the whole uh, nature or the systems approach and the interlinkages between understanding community needs and priorities, the linkages between community interventions and how that's impacted by, you know, the policy environment and ensuring that there is a enabled policy environment to, to support the needs and priorities of communities, in this case, the relocation of, you know, low-income families that were living in flood-prone areas, and then be also being able to work hand-in-hand -hand with the private sector to actually come in and, you know, take on the construction and build adequate and affordable housing and create new communities for these low-income families, and then Habitat being really the facilitator and mediator and consistently looking at the social aspects and ensuring that the process was conducted smoothly and that, uh, you know, they were really, the community was really able to, to transition and, and establish themselves in this new area. And what was particularly innovative about the people-centred and community engagement approaches you used there? 
people-centered approach is really central to our global urban approach. And I think what was really important about the community engagement in Asuncion was that it included what they called rigorous social and technical diagnostic assessments to really understand the needs and challenges faced by communities. So this included various workshops and working with communities to really undertake community mapping, right? So to understand the, the risks and the hazards that impacted on this community, to understand the history, to ensure that there's an understanding of how the community was set up. And then they conducted various imagination workshops, right? So this was really about getting the community to dream, right? To extend their imagination. And, and this was used to guide the participatory development of the new project and to really encourage the community members to dream or imagine their ideal future, which I think is a really innovative and exciting way to be able to engage communities and not just to give them the minimum, but to encourage them to dream, to dream bigger and to dream about their futures. So we've talked a lot about disrupting the system and finding those leverage points to do that. But I'm also interested in how working in this more comprehensive or multi-stakeholder way, for instance, has also been challenging Habitat for Humanity as an organisation to adapt and evolve and learn to do things differently. Could you reflect a bit on that, please? Three core elements of our global urban approach is that it's people-centred, partnership-driven, and it takes a comprehensive housing ecosystem approach, which leads to the design of evidence-based community market policy-level interventions that stem from a deeper understanding of the context, right? So I think there's increasing awareness of the importance of taking a more comprehensive approach, so working across the entire housing ecosystem, and also the importance of, of, of really partnerships and working across people, public-private partnerships. And what we're seeing within our organization is that the global urban approach has really influenced our current theory of change process that we're going through. And I think what has been incorporated into this theory of change is the importance of taking a comprehensive ecosystem view and promoting the integration of programs as well as, like I said, the importance of multi-sector P4 collaborations. But at the same time, I'd like to say that everybody sees the value of taking a comprehensive approach, but there are also challenges related to this, right? So it requires much more resources, it requires more capacity, it requires more time to be able to do, to undertake these appropriate contextual assessments and to be able to design relevant you know, evidence-based community policy and market intervention. So I think there is a, a sort of an adoption of this broader concept for the need for more comprehensive programs, but there's also an understanding that it will require us to build capacity and resources in a different way. And I think that there's also an understanding that even though we advocate for a comprehensive approach, the entry point may be at a community level or a market level or a policy level. And over time, you may grow and expand your interventions to cover other areas. But initially, even though you take a comprehensive assessment, your initial entry point may be at one of those levels. It may not necessarily be across all three levels at the same time. 
Thanks, Sanji. So are there any wider kind of secrets to scalability that you can share from across your work? I think we've seen how this approach really has enabled change into these two very different contexts. But any other thoughts that you'd like to share there or wider lessons and takeaways from this experience that you've got of working in complex urban settings, please? Scalability is related to really the adoption of a clear methodology and program design that can be replicated in many cities globally by leveraging multi-sector P4 partnerships to support the assessments, um, as well as the design and implementation of interventions across the ecosystem. So I think what we're finding is that there needs to be that consistent approach, right? A clear methodology that you can say, okay, in urban context, do your assessments in this way, conduct your processes in this way, engage the you know, relevant stakeholders, co-create and design appropriate interventions. I think that clear methodology helps to give people a pathway to scalability. And any wider lessons or reflections for other organizations working in urban settings? I think when you know, if we think about the sector, to, to implement comprehensive housing programs, or even just to implement comprehensive urban programs, you need to ensure that you've built the right relationships and trust with key stakeholders, and that together you're able to come together and build a clear vision, have a common understanding of the key challenges, and then work together to co-create potential interventions. And if possible, you know, identify uh, leverage points within that system. And what we're finding in terms of taking a comprehensive approach, we feel that comprehensive problems require comprehensive solutions, you know, that are based on a systemic or holistic view that serves the basis for a multi-sector approach. And proposed solutions and interventions should always be contextually relevant and should always be co-created, right, between stakeholders, and they should be based on evidence in the contextual reality. And we find that multi-sector collaborations have the capacity to solve these systemic problems because they draw on the resources and the capacity of all the sectors, um, including public, private, and nonprofit sectors. And, you know, overall, I think the commitment and the buy-in from all stakeholders is absolutely essential for sustainability of community market and policy interventions. And also, I think it's important to understand that a comprehensive approach requires time, it's time consuming, and it also requires flexibility in terms of being able to navigate the complexity and dynamic uh, nature of urban environments. And I think we like that. We like flexibility. You know, a lot of times grants or donors tie us into specific outcomes and outputs, which is absolutely great. But there needs to be some flexibility built into to urban programming to be able to, you know, respond or adapt to changing uh, environmental conditions. Thanks, Angie. And I think you've illustrated the flexibility in the approach. So having a kind of global roadmap, but enabling local journeys, but also the flexibility that you need within that system, both with yourself and your partners for further adaptation as you undertake that journey itself. So my final question, where and what next for your global urban work, either at a kind of broad perspective or in Liberia or Paraguay more specifically? 
think at a global level, we really want to support the development of more comprehensive urban strategies and urban programming at a national level across the organization. We also want to be able to continue and advocate for greater support for the upgrading of informal settlements and promoting increased access to adequate and affordable housing as a key driver and contributor to the sustainable development goals and overall as a contributor towards the creation of resilient, safe, inclusive urban settlements and cities. Obviously, COVID has affected the rate at which we're able to do this, but we're still hopeful that our approach still has relevancy as we move forward and that even to address the challenges that we're seeing with this global pandemic and COVID-19, that there's still value in taking a comprehensive approach where you are, you know, addressing systemic changes, but you're also improving the living conditions at the same time. We hope that, you know, this picks up momentum through our theory of change and that as an organization, we continue to advocate for the design and implementation of more comprehensive urban programming and that we're able to work with other partners in the sector and continue to grow this work. Thanks, Angie. So as one of the leading lights of uh, kind of urban working in the sector, I think we'll all want to keep in touch and follow what you're doing. What are our best ways of doing that? You can always find us. Our organizational website is www.habitat.org. You can reach out to me personally. Uh, my email is sing at habitat.org. We tend to participate in all these global forums. I think, Vicky, we met through our interactions at WOOF, and uh, we hope to continue to do that and engage the sector through these various global platforms as well. Thanks, Angie. And we'll make sure that the links and all that information is included in our show notes. Thanks so much for joining me today. It's been amazing to see how your work plays out in such different contexts. And and as I say, really go back to how you're leading the way for many organisations. So thank you for sharing that. And I really look forward to others hearing about it through this interview. Thank you, Vicky. Really appreciate your really insightful questions and for including us in this innovation report. You can find links to more information and resources on both this innovation case study and the Centre's 2020 Civil Society Innovation and Urban Inclusion Report in the podcast description. Many thanks to our producer, Julia Pazos, for all your hard work in making this podcast series happen. This podcast is kindly supported by the Konrad Adenauer Stiftung and its Strong Cities 2030 initiative, promoting global collaboration and knowledge sharing for sustainable urban development.